I am Michael Brent at Observe the Word, and we are interpreting Romans. Our text is Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. Today we're making a major shift as we move from chapter 4 to chapter 5. We could call it a shift from the issue of justification to the issue of sanctification, or a shift from positional righteousness to practical righteousness. Or to use the language of this course on Romans, it's a shift from the first question of covenant to the second question of covenant. Paul raised two questions at the beginning of chapter 3. What about sin and what about the Jews? And the problem arises from how Paul has answered the first question of covenant. What makes me acceptable to be in relationship with God? So accusing humankind before the court of God, Paul asserts there is another way. You can be declared righteous by grace through faith in Jesus. This is a passive righteousness, meaning you do not do anything to attain it. It's also been called a positional righteousness because it depends on your position or union with Christ. Also been called a forensic righteousness because it is a legal declaration, a declaration made by the court of God in spite of your lack of formal righteousness. You are not actually practically righteous, but have been declared so in Christ Jesus. Here's the problem. If the law is fulfilled, completed, ended in Christ Jesus, then what keeps people from sinning? And furthermore, what about all the promises God made to Israel? These are two serious problems created by the shift from the old covenant of law to the new covenant of grace, and we can't ignore the questions. We cannot just ditch the old covenant and move on. If we cannot depend on the old covenant as the word of God, then why do we have any confidence in the new covenant as the word of God? The veracity of the new depends on the truthfulness of the old. We have to answer the questions. And not just because we have to show the harmony of the old new, but also because the questions are critical to living out the new. We start with the first question, what about sin? This is the question of chapters 5 through 8. And the opposition argues that grace leads to sin and assumes that the God of Paul's gospel does not care about practical righteousness. He's okay declaring his people righteous, but does not really mind how his people choose to live. Grace provides freedom to sin. This objection also assumes that without the fear of the law, people will choose to sin. Grace fails to motivate towards righteousness. Without the big stick of the law and the fear of punishment, religion can't practically work. That's the assumption. And to be honest, it's one I see at work in a lot of Christian churches and organizations that affirm grace. They affirm grace, but they still feel the need to motivate by law and fear, pressure, and judgment. You know, people need to feel bad or they will not do good. That's the the argument, or maybe it's deeper than an argument. It's just this presupposition, assumption, a feeling that we have. We reject both assumptions of the opposition. We reject the assumption that the God of the gospel of Jesus Christ does not care about the righteousness of his people, and we reject the assumption that grace does not motivate and empower for righteousness. The point of grace is practical righteousness. We've been declared righteous that we might truly become righteous. We are forgiven to be transformed. So we're now into answering the second question of covenant. We have been accepted, so how ought we live? We should live according to the grace of Jesus. A difference with the first question is that we are passive in answering the first question of covenant. We are declared righteous on the basis of the work Jesus did. We cannot add to it. But now, considering the second question of covenant, 
we're called to be fully active. We're called to practical, lived-out righteousness, and we're to do it in the special way of the gospel of grace. This is what we need Paul to teach us. What is new about the new covenant of grace in answering the second question, how do we live it out? How do we live out the gospel? We're going to benefit by recognizing the whole structure of Paul's answer in chapters 5 through 8. Quite a few commentators group chapter 5 back with chapter 4, and I understand why. The word justification is still a a theme in the first half of chapter 5. The section definitely serves as a bridge from what is behind to what is coming. I'll give you three good reasons to see chapter 5 as the start of a new major section. The biggest indicator comes in 5.1 where Paul writes, Therefore, having been justified by faith. Justification is now a past accomplishment. Justification is not a progressive reality in the Christian life. You are not being justified. Justification is a once-for-all event that happens the moment we place our faith in Christ. Justification speaks to our declared righteousness, not our practical righteousness. So we would do better to use the word sanctification to talk about the process of becoming more and more righteous. So the shift to past tense in chapter 5, verse 1, suggests we're moving on from the first question of covenant to the second question. Having already been declared righteous, how do we live it out? A second reason to recognize the move to a new section in chapter 5 is that the topic of God's love is introduced here. In verse 5-8, while chapters 1-4 through treated with God's wrath and our precarious position as breakers of the law, the reality of our justification moves us into a new kind of relationship with God. We are no longer in the courtroom. We're now in the household. We've been received into the family. We're sons and daughters. This new tone occurs especially at the beginning of chapter 5 and then in the end of chapter 8. Which brings me to the third reason for recognizing chapter 5 as the beginning of a new major section, and namely the structure. I believe Paul employed a chiastic arrangement in the ordering of the material of these chapters. And when we recognize this arrangement, we see better Paul's main themes of how grace empowers us to live for God. And I'm going to draw that out as we go. If you want to see a detailed chart of the chiastic structure, go to observetheword.com and check out the chart on the resource page. I'll give you the basic idea now. If you were to read the first half of chapter 5 up to verse 11, and then jump over to the second half of chapter 8, starting in verse 18, you'd find that chapter 8 continues on the same themes you were reading in the first part of chapter 5. There's a set of words that are only used at the beginning of chapter 5 and the end of chapter 8, but do not occur in the middle of chapters or verses. So the words are glory, tribulation, perseverance, save, love, and justified, all of which belong to the theme of assurance of relationship in Jesus Christ. We also see the Trinitarian work of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in both of these sections. The next frame of the chiasm occurs in the second half of chapter 5 and the first half of chapter 8 where we get two contrasting pairs, Adam versus Jesus in chapter 5 and flesh versus spirit in chapter 8. The inner frame consists of a double argument for the strength of grace in chapter 6 and a double argument for the weakness of law in chapter 7. And then finally, the first six verses of chapter 7 provide a central point to the chiasm, emphasizing the new way of the spirit over the old way of the written code. This is what Paul is going to teach us. In grace, we have a power for righteous transformation 
that law could never provide. He starts his argument here in chapter 5, 1 through 11, teaching us about our new status in Jesus Christ. This is our text for this lesson. In the passage, Paul uses a threefold repetition of the word exult, which may be translated in your Bible as exult or rejoice or boast. That word is going to give us our structure. So the first use of exult is in verses 1 to one and 2. The second is in verses 3 to 10, and the third wraps us up in verse 11. So let's get started, and we'll start with verses 1 and 2 in our first use of that word exult. So let's read those verses. Romans chapter 5, 1 through 2. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we exult in the hope of the glory of God. Our justification is past tense. We have been justified. Therefore, having been justified, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Without being securely justified as a concluded reality, we can't have peace with God. Our relationship remains tenuous at best. Having been justified as completed fact, we do have peace in our ongoing relationship with God. I remember the first time I preached this passage, I originally came at the word peace, thinking it describes our emotional state, something we feel, the opposite of anxious. Then I realized that's not what this is talking about. The peace here is a cessation of hostilities between two warring parties. Verse 10 is going to reference our former state, saying, while we were enemies. That's the human condition. I did it my way means I did not do it God's way. My way is a state of rebellion. I can expect his wrath. But through Christ, God has achieved peace, putting us into a new state of relationship. We've switched sides. Paul goes on to add, we have peace with God, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. This is our position with God. We stand in grace. We have been made acceptable to be in relationship with God. We do not stand by our own merit, which is unsure. We stand in his grace, which is sure. And here's the result. We exult in the hope of the glory of God. So notice three ideas here. We have exult, we have hope, and we have the glory of God. So the glory of God includes the setting of all things right. We're going to see that developed in chapter 8. The brokenness of this world will be made new. We, his children, will be made new. Justice will reign, God's plans fulfilled, his wisdom vindicated, the glory of his character and plans and might and wisdom realized. We hope in that glory, all things made right, heaven established on earth, God making his presence alive and real among men. And we don't just wish for it, we hope in it with a sense of conviction and assurance. This indeed will be. We believe in the truth that God's glory will be realized. We've seen the glory of the cross, and we believe in the future consummation of his kingdom. That's our hope. It's the hope we exult in. And I I love this word, exult. I think it captures together the sense expressed in the two other words English translators use for this Greek word. Some use rejoice. We rejoice in this hope we have. Others use boast. We boast in the hope. Exult brings both ideas together. Croatia beat England today in the World Cup semifinal game, and Croatians are exulting. They are boasting in the team as as though they were somehow a part of the victory. 
Not only do they boast in the victory, but the victory gives them great joy. Everybody's jumping up and down and everybody's screaming and everybody's throwing beer and water in the air and lighting off flares and going crazy. Everybody's wearing red and white checkered shirts and hats and scarves and displaying the glory of Croatia. And and I'm in on it. You know, I'm not even Croatian, but my girls have shirts and my dad has a shirt. My brother has a shirt. We've got the Croatian flag up and we're putting photos of us cheering on Facebook and we're all exulting. We're boasting. We're rejoicing. As believers, we get to exult in something so much grander, eternal, of greater consequence. We exult in Jesus Christ. He is our boast and he is our joy. We exult in what he did on the cross, in the victory he won over the legions of hell. We didn't do it. He did it. But we're on his side. And it's, it's not... It's not really parallel to winning a sport championship. It's more parallel to D-Day, to the invasion of Nazi-held Europe. Jesus has won the decisive victory all on his own. He's taking back ground, and we exult, and we boast in his goodness and his power and his mercy and his wisdom. Um, we boast in the kingdom that's coming, that he's already won. And that that's another difference to the sporting analogy. It's I, I have... No idea if Croatia will beat France on Sunday to win the World Cup. The end is unknown. I wish for them to win, but I do not have a sure hope. You know, I don't know. After 90 minutes or maybe 120 minutes, the whole nation could be raised to the heights of exaltation or crushed in the agony of defeat. But with Christ, we know the end. He is, when he won D-Day on the cross, he won V-Day. Victory is sure. Our hope is not wishing. Our hope is believing in the power of God to complete what he has started. It is a, a sure hope and an everlasting exaltation. Jesus has won. Jesus will win. We stand in Christ and exult in the hope of the glory of God. What about suffering? How does suffering fit in? We've won in Christ. And we look ahead to the full establishment of his kingdom. But what about now? What about the suffering we go through now? What does that do to our boast or to our joy? Good question. So let's look at the next use of the word exalt in verses 3 through 10. And I'm going to divide this into subsections. So let's just read uh, 3 through 5 first, and then we'll get into 6 through 10. So Romans 5, 3 through 5. And not only this. But we also exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance and perseverance proven character and proven character hope. And hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Here's our second use of the word exult. We also exult in our tribulations. We can make a helpful distinction between happiness and exultation. We ought to really. Our modern world's quite keen on promoting happiness and avoiding suffering. This is where some branches of Christianity go quite wrong. Suffering is a promise for the Christian. God left us in this world to identify with the world just as Christ did. And as he suffered, so too will we. There's a happiness that lives on the surface of our emotions, connected quite closely to our circumstances in the present moment. And we, we can't engage with our world and maintain this kind of surface level happiness. Engagement requires mourning with those who mourn. 
deeper in, there's a joy that comes from God. We take the suffering, but look ahead to hope in what will come. And as we look to God in faith through the suffering, we're able to experience a satisfaction of the soul that lies much deeper than our circumstances. It's not something we can create. It comes from fixing our eyes on Jesus, and it's produced by the Holy Spirit. Habakkuk talked about this deeper experience in his prophecy, the one Paul connected us back to in his thesis in Romans chapter 1, verse 16 and 17. So you remember that Habakkuk heard of God's plan of salvation, and he disliked it. The plan meant suffering for Israel. But then in chapter 3, it revealed a change in Habakkuk as he saw God's plan through the eyes of faith. Habakkuk could see the coming judgment on his beloved homeland. And he describes it this way, Though the fig tree should not blossom, and there be no fruit on the vines. And he goes on detailing the coming destruction, but then he ends up with these words of faith, Yet I will exult in the Lord, I would rejoice in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength. He has made my feet like hinds feet, and he makes me walk on high places. God had become Habakkuk's boast, his joy, his exultation. How much more for us is Jesus and the hope of his coming, our boast and joy and exultation, even when outward circumstances bring pain? Paul sees faith working this way. We follow tribulations with the perseverance of faith, and when we do so, we experience proven character, and the result is, again, hope. So when we persevere in faith, as Abraham did going up to the mountain, once the trial is over, our character is proven, both in the sense of being revealed as true and in the sense of being strengthened. Still, we have to be careful not to make this into a Christian formula that we just have to, you know, if we just, we can exalt and then we're going to have tribulations, then we're going to persevere, then we're going to have proven character, then we're going to have hope, and this is the way that it works if you're a real Christian and it's always going to work like this and everything's going to be good and you can be happy. That's formalizing the faith. But suffering is a process that we sometimes pass through with faith and sometimes not. So I remember one stressful day where I consciously remembered this passage. I quoted Romans 5.3 to myself. The trial was burdensome, but I, I turned my eyes on Jesus and I chose by faith to persevere and I held my anger in. I continued in faith. Then I spilled my coffee into my laptop and I lost it. No faith. No perseverance, just the wrath of the flesh. And I I just wanted to toss the laptop. Never mind. Um, I feel like it happens to me quite often. I lose it just at that moment right before the trial's over. If I'd only held on another 10 minutes or another hour, another day, you know, I persevere and I persevere and I persevere and then I give up and then the trial ends. So I guess at least I'm learning humility, or I hope I'm learning humility. Suffering's a process, and we need to learn how to handle it as Christians. Being happy is not the worst thing. It's not even necessarily unspiritual. Sometimes we ought to be unhappy in the spirit. We need to think about this more, and since I know we're going to do just that in chapter 8, I'm going to move on for now. The key idea here is that exaltation is deeper than happiness and stronger than suffering. We exult because our suffering leads us back to our hope. Knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance and perseverance, proven character and proven character, hope. And as Paul says, our hope does not disappoint us. Though I could imagine a hope that would disappoint. In fact, I've had before hopes that disappoint. And if, if heaven means living with naked baby angels on clouds strumming harps, 
that hope would be extremely disappointing. It is amazing how boring depictions of heaven can be. We fail to look forward to heaven when our imagination fails to consider the glory of the kingdom of God and the deep satisfaction and joy that come from being truly and fully alive in him and with him. A bland and boring hope could easily disappoint. But Paul declares, hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Paul wrote in another place, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. And the Apostle John wrote, This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. When we begin to experience, even just to taste, the fulfillment that comes from relationship with God, then we get a hint of how our deepest longings might be met in Him, and the idea of heaven begins to draw us onward and upward. And notice notice here that Paul is speaking about a subjective experience. This is not something that you just imagine or think about. This is something you feel. It's also not something you can create for yourself. The love of God is poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit. When we get to know Jesus, yield to him and seek him, God does a spiritual work in our hearts to love him. C.S. Lewis described this experience in his autobiography, Surprised by Joy. Seeking deeper satisfaction in the soul, Lewis found his happiness always fleeting and wanting. So, Being drawn closer and closer to God, Lewis famously described his con- conversion as a prodigal son brought in kicking, struggling, resentful. And yet when he gave up his search for joy and yielded to Christ and looked to him, joy finally came. Then when he took his eyes off Christ to hold on to the joy, the joy faded away. And again, turning to Christ, he found the joy return. Joy is the product of personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Joy is not the goal. When our eyes are fixed on joy, we lose joy. When our eyes are fixed on Jesus, then joy will come. Jesus is the goal. Joy is a product of relationship with him. The love of God, however, is not grounded in subjective experience. It does not depend on our feelings. I might question whether I truly believe if I never experience the work of the Holy Spirit in my heart, if I'm never tempted to exalt or boast or rejoice in Jesus. Can I know Jesus and yet feel no love for him or no joy in him? That's a fair question. Yet it's not the case that if I love Jesus, I will always feel the joy of knowing him. Human emotion is too variable. Joy follows true faith, but true faith is not equal to joy. So Habakkuk made a choice to trust in God, even as his circumstances churned fear in his stomach. So before the declaration of faith that led to his exaltation in God, he confessed, My inward parts trembled. At the sound, my lips quivered. Decay entered my bones, and in my place I tremble, because I must wait quietly for the day of distress for the people to arise who will invade us. This is not a depiction of joy. Sometimes we have to choose in faith to exalt in God and allow God to bring the feelings later. The prospect of suffering didn't bring joy to Jesus. He agonized in the garden. He endured the cross for the joy set before him, a joy to come after. So we experience melancholy, apathy, depression, distraction, anger, sadness, bitterness. Our faith is not grounded in our ability to, to subjectively feel the love of God. I do not believe that God loves me because I feel that God loves me. I believe that God loves me because God, in fact, loves me. 
regardless of my feelings on the matter. Paul goes on to clarify this objective ground of God's love in verses 6 to 10. So let's read that. Romans 5, 6 through 10. For while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love towards us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more then, having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God through the death of his Son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. God chose to die for us while we were his enemies. We believe he loves us because he has said, I love you, and backed his words up by taking our place on a cross. I've been asked what distinction Paul is making between the righteous man and the good man in verse 7. I don't think there's any distinction. This is classic Hebrew parallelism. And Paul's restatement emphasizes the wonder of it all. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man, someone would dare to die. But God demonstrates his love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Amazing love, how can it be that my king would die for me? God's love for you is objectively established by his death for you. That's why he did it. Whether you believe it or not, God deeply, deeply, deeply loves you. So believe it. Preach it to yourself. I feel so sad when I hear Whitney Houston's song, The Greatest Love of All, for two reasons. First, she sings, Learning to love yourself is the greatest love of all. No, it's absolutely not. The greatest love of all is the love of God who died for you when you could care less. He loved you and he loves you. And no love in heaven or on earth, or under the earth, can ever come close to his love. That's the greatest love of all. And the second part of the song that makes me sad is the claim that the greatest love is easy to achieve. That is absolutely not true. And the untruth of that played out in Whitney Houston's life. On the contrary, it's surprisingly difficult to love yourself with a true and gracious love. Love is not the same thing as self-absorption. It's easy to be self-absorbed. But to truly see yourself and still love yourself... It can be quite tough. At least I would say that's been my experience. For me, loving myself starts with accepting the fact that God loves me and accepting that fact regardless of my emotions to the contrary. Praise the Lord that the reality of his love does not depend on the reality of me feeling his love. The objective fact of God's love is my assurance of future security with him. You know, If God went through the cross for me even while I was a sinner, justifying me by giving his life, his blood in my place, then I know I will be safe from his wrath on the final day of judgment. If Jesus has already brought about reconciliation between me and God, if he's already established peace by removing the one barrier to God's love, my, my guilt, then having now been reconciled, do I not know that I will be saved by the life of Christ? I know that he has put me in a safe place. I stand in grace. Which of my sins does the cross not cover? Which transgression did his blood not pay for? What future sin can I commit that stands outside the saving grace of atonement? I stand in grace. I know I'm not going to face wrath. I'm safe. I am secure. He loves me and has done the work necessary to bring me home. I know how the game's going to end. I know. So we exalt, we exalt, and Paul returns a third time to we exalt in verse 11. 
And not only this, but we also exult in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. This last verse is not a third example of exaltation, but a summing up, a restatement of how Paul started. The work of Jesus has brought about a reconciliation between us, the prodigal sons and daughters, and God, our Heavenly Father. He paid the ultimate price, and his motive is love. God loves you. God wants you to be in his family, and he wants you to know that you are secure in your relationship with him. In Christ, you have assurance that on the day of judgment and wrath, you will be received as a beloved child. And so we exult. We boast in what he has done. How great is our God? There's no God like our God, no Savior like Jesus. Like a young soldier rejoices in his hero, like a new bride exults in her groom, we rejoice and we exult in Christ Jesus. Paul chose here at the beginning of chapters 5 to 8 to start his argument on the power of grace by emphasizing to us these two things. We have a secure hope and we have the joy of his love. This is the same way Paul's going to end in chapter 8. This is where the new way of grace starts. This is the context, the environment of the new way. Before we dig in and begin the challenge of living out the Christ-like life, before we begin the struggle of doing, we need to know we are secure. I once heard of a kindergarten with a large grassy play area by the school, and when the kids went out to play, they would always play in the field close to the building. They'd never venture out to the edges of the play area. Then the school installed a fence around the playground, and after that the kids played all over, near the school, by the fence, everywhere. The fence provided a sense of security that gave the kids confidence to play. When you know you are secure in your relationship with God, you might abuse that security, but on the other hand, you might feel free to fail, free to try, free to fall down and get back up and try again, free to take risk, free to take responsibility. That's the kind of children God wants to raise the children of grace. That's the power of grace, the power of knowing you are loved and will not be cast out. It's the power of a secure hope. That hope is further strengthened by a work of the Holy Spirit. As we pursue God in grace, he works in our heart to give us the joy of loving him. Have you heard the phrase, the joy of the Lord is your strength? And if so, do you know where that comes from? It's in Nehemiah 8.10. Nehemiah and Ezra had just led the people of Jerusalem in a spiritual revival. They were deeply convicted of sin, which was good, but Ezra doesn't want them to dwell in their guilt. He tells them to go and rejoice. This is a day holy to our Lord. Do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So this is the power of grace. God has dealt with our guilt. When we recognize sin, it is right for us to feel sorrow and confess it. Then we thank Jesus for dying for us and we move on. He does not want us to remain in the grief of our sin. He wants us to exult in the glory of Christ and the joy of our salvation. Grace allows us to do this, to acknowledge our sin and move on, which is critical in the struggle against sin. We cannot defeat sin by constant resistance of unholy desire. We need a new desire. To resist sin, we need to be able to turn from the unholy desire to a new and pure desire when we experience the true joy of the Spirit. We're not even thinking about the desires of sin. A new desire has replaced the old. The joy of the Lord is our strength. Grace does not condemn us for not yet fully experiencing this joy. Grace gives us space to pursue Christ and to grow in our joy of knowing him. That's the new way of grace, the gospel way. The law motivates by fear and insecurity. Grace motivates by joy 
and assurance. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we exult in the hope of the glory of God. If you would like the text of this lesson with some resource questions, or if you'd like to see overview charts that go along with our study of Romans, then check out the resource page at observetheword.com.